Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. And uh, before we get started here, can we give the worship team a hand? They, uh, <laughs> they, they, they I, I love that we have a team, even when the fearless worship leader is not here. So Pastor Dave and his family are on vacation this week, and it is, uh, I, I, I am actually a little bit like, they are actually vacationing uh, near where I went to college. So I'm like, they, t- they told me where they were going, and I'm like, I know all the waterfalls and all the places, um, but I'm happy to be here with you this morning. I promise. Um, <laughs> no, I actually am. And I'm, I'm excited uh, about what the Lord has for us this morning in our series that we're going to continue. Um, in uh, the book of John, I promise I didn't forget. The book of John, we're going to be in a series called Sharing Life Like Christ. So we've been in this series going through the book of John. And um, we've been specifically taking a deep dive into the specific interactions that Jesus has with particular people throughout this gospel of John. And so we've been looking at how he meets people right where they are in their unique situations and in their unique circumstances and in their even unique personalities. And so we've been looking at how he speaks to people. We've been looking at how he treats people and how he handles their pain and how he handles their shame and how he navigates even their pride. So we've seen how he engages both the mind and the soul and how he effortlessly seems to navigate these insecurities and these insecure barriers and the misdirections that people are constantly throwing at him to keep him at a distance. These are the themes that we see over and over again as Jesus engages with people and interacts with people. And so we've seen the way he loves people in spirit and truth and how he neither sugarcoats the truth nor bashes people over the head with it in a way that only Jesus seems to be able to do perfectly. And so we're given a front row seat to the way that life itself, like God in the flesh, shares life with people, with us. And so as we do, we're able to really drink in who Jesus is and how he interacts with us today. Like we're able to see the ways of Jesus on display. Like we're we're able to see the character of Jesus on full display in these interactions in the Gospel of John. And see, this is in this series, it's not just about how to tell people about Jesus. Like I want you to see in this series how to experience the love of God in Jesus Christ. And then, and then introduce others to the Jesus you know. Right? Like we've seen over and over again how everyone who receives the love of God, experiences the love of God in Christ, they immediately respond by introducing others to him, and then they go out and say, come and see. Like so often we read this stuff, and then we walk away with this conclusion, I should do more. I should tell people. I should, 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 should. You know what you should do? You should experience the love of Jesus. You should behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And when you do, it's going to overflow. Like when you are truly encountered by Jesus, I dare you to walk into the grocery store without suddenly everybody being like, what is up with that guy? Seriously. 
It's got nothing to do with being an extrovert or introvert. It's just called being human. Okay? And so we see over and over again how everyone who receives the love of God in Christ, they then respond by introducing others to him. They're saying, come and see. And so they don't introduce people to their opinion of him. They introduce them to him because they want others to experience what they have experienced in Christ. He's not just a philosophy. He's not just a set of rules. He's a person. But he's a person described and presented perfectly through the word of God, which is why we're diving into these descriptions of him in his word. As we said before, in order to share life like Christ, you've got to first be sharing life in Christ. Amen? So that means you realize that the way he interacts with all of these people in the Bible here is the way he's continually interacting with you today. So the way he navigates all of their misdirection and all of their ego and all of their insecurities then is the same way he navigates and deals with your misdirections and your egos and your insecurities today. And yes, you do have all of those things. <laughs> I know I do, right? And so again, one of the main reasons I felt led to like, start this series is so that we can be reminded of who Jesus actually is. Right, to behold the Savior and the King for who he is rather than who we think he is or who we think he should be or even who we want him to be. Because who we want him to be or who we think he should be isn't necessarily who he actually is, but who he actually is, how he's actually presented in the scriptures is who we desperately need him to be. Whether you want him to be that way or not, he's the Jesus you need. Amen? So we've been beholding the Jesus of the Bible, which is the true Jesus. And as we do, we've directed, we are directed to his living presence who continues to act, interact with us today. So, um, and here's the key. He's not just interacting with us. He's calling us to rest in him. Now, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we live in a pretty self-consumed society. 2 Timothy 3 put it like this. Verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a young pastor named Timothy. And he writes this. He says, But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, I don't think this is a list of multiple, like, standalone categories, right? Like, it starts here with, with um, understand this, in the last days, right? So, we're, like, we're in the last days. And so, he says, people will be lovers of self. And then out of that statement that people will be lovers of self, all of the rest of these uh, characteristics are the result. Okay? 
which also means that they're going to be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, on and on and on and on. And so then it's all a contrast to being lovers of God. So it's sandwiched between the people in the last days, there's going to be difficulty. Why is there going to be difficulty? Four people will be lovers of self. And then because they're lovers of self, all these other things are going to take place. And then it's sandwiched and contrasted at the end here with being lovers of God. So they're lovers of self, which is contrasted with lovers of God. You don't get both. Okay? So they may even have the appearance of godliness, but they don't love him. They don't trust him. They only love themselves. They only worship themselves. They consider their own ways higher than God's ways. They may even quote Bible verses and call themselves Christians, but their fruit is ultimately self-serving, self-centered, and rotten. Right? Like, he's not saying all of this to be mean or to make himself feel good about himself. Again, that's all that self-serving stuff. Like, often when we read passages like that, you look at that and you hear it and you're like, yeah, get them. In the last days, they're all going to be lovers of self and abusive and they're not even going to even listen to their parents. Right? But not me. I love God. You're missing the point. Right? That's not what he's doing. He's not setting himself up to feel good about himself. He's not telling Timothy why he's better than all the people. He's not saying, hey, church, you're great. The rest of the world isn't. Right? What he's doing is the Apostle Paul's writing these things to a young pastor named Timothy, again, to bring awareness to the spirit of the age that he's pastoring in. And he's doing it because the answer to the problem of pride isn't shame, nor is the solution to shame more pride, okay? Like the answer to having high self-esteem isn't to shame yourself into low self-esteem. And the answer to low self-esteem isn't to puff yourself up with pride and high self-esteem. That's the way a self-consumed society deals with this kind of issue. And it's the reason so many people feel so stuck and consumed by these cycles of pride and shame. The answer isn't self-esteem. The answer is God-esteem. That's it. This is what allows for what Tim Keller calls self-forgetfulness. The answer and the solution is to simply behold and rest. Say rest. In the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is the only answer. So this morning we're going to talk about rest. But not the passive kind of rest. I'm not talking about the kind of rest where you just sort of lay around and don't do anything. Okay? Don't get me wrong, that can be necessary at times, right? Like every night. <laughs> You know, there's a reason you need to sleep and just stop. You're designed for that. If you don't do that, you will die, right? So, um, and some of you are like, they're like, saving time. I feel like I'm dying right now. But maybe that was the first service. Y'all got coffee now. Um, so, but the point here, though, is that what we're going to talk about is, is the kind of rest that Jesus invites us to engage in. Because what the point is, is, is that... Um, while laying around, that can be necessary at times, but also just laying around and doing nothing isn't always restful. And often it can become enslaving. 
The kind of rest that we're looking at here this morning is the kind of rest that Jesus invites us to actively engage in, okay? It's the kind of rest that recreates, rejuvenates, and restores. It's the kind of rest that makes us whole. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. The invitation of salvation and restoration is an invitation to actively rest in Jesus Christ. Say rest. The invitation of salvation and restoration is an invitation to actively rest in Jesus Christ. Now you might be like, actively rest? Like that's still not computing. Like what does that even mean? When we think of rest, we tend to think, again, of less activity, like lying down rather than standing up. But this morning, we're going to walk through John chapter 5, verse 1 through 18, which is about an interaction that Jesus has with a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And I want to show you that the kind of rest that Jesus invites us to engage in is the kind that calls us to stand rather than lie down. And as we walk through this passage, I'm going to point out three ways that Jesus invites us to engage in true rest and restoration and even redefines, in a way, what that means. So the first thing that he does, sort of a roadmap, are these three ways, these three things that he does. The first thing that he does is he asks, do you want to be healed? And the second is, he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And then lastly, he says, sin no more. John 5, verse 1. Here we go. So we'll start with, do you want to be healed? Look at verse 1. It says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, so right here, whenever you're given a bunch of details like this, it's for a reason, right? So whenever scripture gives you just a ton of like detail, it's because it's painting a picture and it wants you to grasp this picture. So visualize this, picture this. Just outside of the massive wall surrounding the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, okay, is this huge sheep gate, which was designed for sheep, right? So flocks of sheep, herds, I don't know what you call them, sheep, would go in and out of the temple at this gate. And let's be honest, it's the temple mount where a lot of sacrifice happens, so those sheep are probably going in and not coming out, right? But the point is (laughs) that this is what this gate is for, okay? And then just outside of this gate, there was a large pool that would have been used for ritual cleansing, okay? So people would use this pool to to cleanse themselves, ceremonial cleansing, before entering the temple area. And now, this pool is not like a little pond, okay? We're not talking like hot tub on the side, all right? Um, This was a large structure. It was a very intentionally laid out structure. pool, and it had five roofed colonnades, which were kind of like roofed porches that surrounded this pool for easy access into the water. That's what it's describing. And so, yes, there were roofs over them in the ancient 
uh, Near East, people weren't really into sunbathing. They were trying to get away from the sun, right? So this is not, this is why around these entryways into this pool, um, there were these roofs, okay? And so, uh, again, it would have been used for ritual cleansing ceremonies, and historians um, and archaeologists say that this pool would have been at least 40 feet deep in some areas. Again, it shouldn't be surprising that this ritual cleansing pool uh, was also associated itself with healing. So this is why multitudes of blind, lame, and paralyzed people were waiting here. After all, Bethesda literally means house of mercy in Aramaic. So now you may notice that some of your Bibles have uh, verse 4 in them, but some of them don't. Some translations, like the English Standard Version, which I'm actually reading from, intentionally takes verse 4 and puts it at the bottom of your Bible as a footnote. So you'll read it, and it goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Why? Well, the reason for that is because it's verse that's not found in any of the earliest manuscripts, okay? Which likely means that it was added later in an effort to bring some kind of helpful context to what's going on in the story. Like it's presented here as more of an ancient commentary for what's happening in the scriptures rather than being scripture itself because it explains that the multitude of invalids were, quote, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So what's going on here? Was there some kind of like angelic activity happening here? Or was this just some superstition that was developed over time? Like maybe there was some kind of like geothermal activity going on. I mean, again, this was an extremely deep pool, right? And it was a mountainous area, so maybe that's what's going on. Maybe, maybe like, th- that activity released medicinal minerals, and, and then maybe that's why people were actually healed. Is that what's going on? Maybe that's, like, the scientific explanation, but even if that is the scientific explanation for what's happening, would that make it any less supernatural? The truth is, I don't know, and neither do you, Right? And here's the best part, none of that matters, because none of that is the point. Like, what matters is these multitudes believed at least something like this was happening, which is why they were all there. This is why they were waiting and anticipating and clamoring and clawing and striving to be the first in the pool in order to win their restoration. That's what they're after. In other words, these guys weren't exactly team players, Right? It, it would have been like an all-out competition for the gold medal of peace or shalom. They were striving and fighting for it. You see, the word peace in Hebrew is, again, the word shalom. And when we think of peace, we tend to think about peace as being like, you know, just playing nice together and getting along. But for the Hebrew, it was a lot deeper. It means total wholeness and restoration. Right? Mind, body, and soul. This was the prize of wholeness, shalom. This is what they were competing for, striving for. And in this context, man, love thy neighbor was not in their playbook. It was every man for himself. It was get me in the pool, whatever it takes, I will step on your face to get there. That's what's going on. 
Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he had already been, that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me. Now, this is brutal. There's no getting around it. This man's circumstance is horrendous. Like if this same circumstance doesn't evoke compassion in your heart, then you've got a broken heart, right? Like there's something in this that's just, you can feel how brutal this situation is. And also notice that it doesn't say that he was born lame. It says he's been lame for 38 years. That means he's tasted what it's like to walk and to run and to live physically whole. And when you think about that, and you think about this man's situation, like, you're, you're probably filled with compassion. You should be. But is that the way or the reason why Jesus chose this man over all the others? Like, I know that we get the statistic that he's been there for so long and that Jesus knew he had been there for so long. But is that why he chose him? Is it because he's been there for so long or maybe for how hard he's worked or how bad he wanted it? Is it because his situation was worse than the others or different than the other people? Is it because he's paid his dues for 38 years? Is that why Jesus chose him to heal? Or maybe it's because he's just an innocent victim in all of this. After all, that's normally what initiates our acts of kindness, right? Like people who deserve it. But guys, deserves got nothing to do with God's mercy. In fact, by definition, mercy is undeserved. I don't know if you guys seen The Chosen. Anybody seen The Chosen? The Chosen depicts this. And I think it goes a step too far in depicting the reasons why Jesus heals him. I love the chosen. Woo! But you got to be careful. The chosen ain't the Bible. Okay? And I think they make an assumption on Christ's motivations. But what we know of Scripture and what we see here, what we really know is that we don't know how he was paralyzed. And we don't know why Jesus healed him. Look, he may have been paralyzed by no fault of his own, right? Or he, he could have been paralyzed while trying to rob or hurt somebody else. We don't know. And we don't know why Jesus chooses to show this man mercy. What we do know is he does not deserve it. Because nobody does. That's why God's mercy is so powerful. It's undeserved. It's undeserved. Let that factor into whether or not you should show people compassion. Right? It's not because somebody deserves it. Nobody deserves it. That's the point. Mercy's undeserved. That's what it is. Romans 9, 15 says this. Verse 9, uh, 15 and 16. It says, for he says to Moses, so it's Paul quoting Moses. <laughs> I will have mercy on, well, sorry, let me rephrase this. It's Paul quoting Moses, who's quoting God. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why did he choose this man? I don't know. Why did he choose you? I don't know. Why did he choose me? I don't know, but I'm thankful. Now again, think about this man's context. He would have been tormented by those waters. Healing was just always just out of reach. He's always striving. He's always clawing and fighting and trying. But it was never enough. He was never enough. Like wholeness, rest, and restoration, always just out of reach for 38 years. You ever felt like that? No matter what you do, you just can't win. Right? Maybe you've found yourself speaking like this. Maybe you've found yourself speaking out those types of curses over your life or over your day. Right? Just one of those days. I've done this. I've, I've found myself doing this. Right? It's like part of our fallen culture. It just flows so easily off of our tongues. Just one of those days, like, what else can go wrong? You know? Just one thing after another. That probably sounds a little too familiar, right? Or how about, nothing I do is ever enough. Maybe, nothing I do seems to matter anyway. Nobody ever listens to me anyway. Or how about, I swear, I give up. What's the point? What's it matter anyway? Probably sounds a little too familiar. Those statements are so common. It's like somebody wrote a playbook on how to flush your manhood down the toilet and just handed it out to everybody. Right? Like people think using certain four-letter words is cursing. (laughs) But these are the real curses. Because they trace back to the ultimate curse, especially for men. Hear me. Now, of course, this principle applies to everybody on some level. But when a father or a husband or a son, which, by the way, all men fall into that category in one way or the other. All of you who have been called to protect and provide and to lead and to love like God And instead, they start talking and acting like that. Man, it hits like a little extra hard for everyone around them. Because it's a twisting and a perversion of what they've been designed for. So, why is it so common? I'm glad you asked. See, there's no excuse for it. But there is a reason. And I want you to be aware of this reason. Because there's also a cure. I want you to be aware of the reason why commercials and society presents the dad or the man as a bumbling buffoon who has no idea what he's doing. There's a reason for that. When God created humanity in Genesis 2, we were created for productive dominion of the earth. Okay? 
In fact, Genesis 2 tells us that the very first thing God did after he created Adam specifically, even before he created Eve, the woman, was that he created a garden for Adam to cultivate, to work it, and to tend it, to cultivate and create and bring order and flourishing in it, right? Like, and all of his work would have been so good and so satisfying and so fruitful. Then, like, you can feel, you can taste, that would have been amazing, And when Eve is created, she even enters into the same mission of cultivation and flourishing. It was part of our very good design. This was the Garden of Eden, paradise. But through disobedience, sin entered the world. And God then curses the serpent who tricked the woman. And then he curses the woman. And then finally, he curses the man. But each one of these curses in Genesis has a different implication. Now, I don't have time to get into all the implications of all of them. I want to, but I definitely don't have time. So I do want you to see the deserved curse that God placed on man because it applies directly to this broken man by the Bethesda pool. And I also want you to see the cure in Jesus Look with me at Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. It says this, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now, okay, stop right there. Remember one of the first things that we saw in Adam's fallen behavior was the desire to shirk responsibility. Okay? Like his sin makes him feel exposed and insecure, and so he tries to hide and isolate. But then when God confronts him, the first thing he does is blame it all on his wife. But then God makes it clear here that the responsibility is squarely on his shoulders. Okay? Now, he's not excusing the wife or any of that stuff. Like that's a whole other thing. But What we see is that God continues to speak to Adam's squandered responsibility and poor stewardship of his role by saying, cursed is the ground because of you. Remember the ground that he was given stewardship to take dominion and subdue and cultivate? Remember that? Cursed is that ground now because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, you're designed to cultivate, create, take dominion, and produce fruit. But now, the fruit of your labors will simply be frustration. Verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Whew! That's heavy, because it's real. In other words, life in this fallen world is hard, it's frustrating, and it feels pointless. Work seems pointless. It's like, what's the point? Right? Listen, you were created to thrive, but now you're going to have to sweat just to survive. And no matter how hard you work, it's only going to produce thorns and thistles. And there's nothing you can do about it. It goes way 
way beyond farming, right? Like wise King Solomon is the one who said in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, it's all just vanity. Like what's the point? Like your job doesn't fulfill, that relationship doesn't fulfill, that breakthrough that you've been praying for and waiting on, and and it either didn't happen or it's fully unsatisfying. These are all these false hopes, these false pools. This job isn't what I thought it would be. My life isn't what I thought it would be. This city, these friends, this degree, this marriage, this house, it's not producing what I thought it would. No matter how hard I try, and nobody will even help me. Blame, 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 blame. Frustrated, angry, isolated. Sound familiar? This is the anthem of the lame man beside the Bethesda pool. This is the anthem of all who eat the bread of anxious toil. As Psalm 127.2 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Nothing is ever enough. The work is never finished. No matter how hard I try, I can't get into the pool. I can't make enough money. I can't earn enough degrees. I can't meet their expectations. Like, whose expectations are you even talking about? Like, my, my, my parents. My parents. My parents' expectations. They expect so much of me. What? Well, my boss. Seriously? Your boss? Whose expectations? Well, you know, you know like them. Them out there. People blame parents, they blame society, they blame peer pressure. But guys, this is the result of sin and the curse. Period. You hear stories all the time about how money and fame doesn't satisfy. But hearing about it, like how it's ruined somebody else, doesn't stop us from trying to fill that void, right? Constantly. You know, like Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders, when I was a kid, it was Neon Dion. Anybody? Prime time. That's what they called him. Prime time. They still do, some of them. He played in Major League Baseball, and he played in the NFL, right? And he's the only athlete to ever play both in the Major League World Series and in an NFL Super Bowl. In fact, he won two NFL Super Bowls. That's impressive. Like, this guy was on top of the world, man. Except it turns out his world was just a bunch of invalids scrambling to be the first in the pool. I don't know if you know much about his story, but he actually confessed that the night of his second Super Bowl win, he couldn't even go out of his hotel room to celebrate. Prime time was bound to his bed because he was so suicidal. Like he'd achieved all he'd ever wanted, and it turned out to be nothing but thorns and thistles. And so this father of two young kids, in 1997, right after that second Super Bowl, he drove his car off a cliff in an attempt to kill himself. Because it was all so meaningless. You may not know that about Deion Sanders, but it's true. It actually led him to the Lord. Because he survived. But without the grace of God, it's all just vanity. 
Without the breath of God, neon Dion is just dust. Just lifeless, dry bones, as it were. And it's the result of a very deserved curse. Not only that, but remember the, the curse on the serpent or Satan? Remember that? Remember I said there was a curse that was give, given to the snake too? Genesis 3.14 actually says this. This is part of the curse. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That was the curse on the serpent, on the devil. And what does this ravenous, shameful, slithering, and cursed serpent feast on? Dust. He feeds on the cursed lives of men, for you are dust. The empty, pointless vanities and endless rebellious striving for false hope, it's all dust. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Someone obsessed and frustrated by the thorns. Someone wallowing in their own self-pity or shirking responsibility and blaming everybody else. He's looking for somebody who identifies as a victim to be his victim. He's looking for someone who identifies with their sin rather than the Savior. So he can consume them like the dust they are. He's looking to kill, steal, and destroy. But Christ has come that we may have life and life more abundantly, says John 10.10. 10. See, Jesus came to break the curse on man once and for all who would accept his finished work at the cross. Like, think about it, guys. What we could not do, he did for us. By the bloody sweat of his face, he endured the cross. He took all the wages of our sinful striving upon himself. This is what he did. Guys, it's no coincidence that Jesus was crowned with thorns. Remember, a crown is a reward. It's what you would get in a marathon. After you won a marathon, they'd give you a crown, right? This is what you get. The wages of winning this race, crown, right? The wages of sin is what? Death. And so the curse of man was placed upon Jesus on the cross. He was crowned with our curse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was dead and buried like a seed. And then bursting forth like the tree of life itself, Jesus conquered death and the curse, and he produced, producing the fruit of everlasting life. And now, because of the finished work of the cross, we don't have to eat the bread of anxious toil anymore. We can come to the table of real communion with God and feast on the bread of life, which is the word of God, and the breath in, and breathe in, I should say, breathe in the breath of God, which is the spirit of God, no longer dust. Remember, that's how Adam was formed in the beginning? The dust of the earth, the dirt, and God did what? breath of life. That's the difference between dust and you. You know what the difference is? Holy Spirit. Breath of God. 
No longer just dust, but recreated, restored, and made whole. Shalom. This is the gospel. That God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die. But he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way through the resurrection to God the Father. And he broke the curse, and he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when you die. The curse isn't broken one day when you die and go to heaven. The curse is broken the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. Curse broken. Done. Like you may be carrying the chains around, but it ain't attached to anything. That's the victory in Christ. This is what he's won for you. Like this is why he said it is finished. He said it at the cross. He didn't say it at his return. He said it at the cross. No more work needs to be done. It's finished. If he says it at the return, it's because he's echoing what he did at the cross. Shalom. Shalom. Rest and restoration in Christ even now. It's an invitation to trust him, to follow him, to be restored by him, and to walk in that restoration. So when Jesus asks this man if he wants to be healed, it's not a silly question at all. It's the question that he set before all of humanity. All of humanity is just hopelessly clamoring in vain for wholeness and restoration. The question is, do you really want it? Like Remember when Jesus asked questions, They're designed more for your own reflection than for his understanding, okay? Like, he already knows what's going on in your heart. Like, he's wanting you to identify and come to grips with it, to confess what is true. And that's exactly what's happening here when he asks, do you want to be healed? And the response Jesus gets here is often the response that we all give reasons and excuses for why healing is not possible reasons why we're just victims of our circumstances but why like why doesn't this man immediately just say yes please i've been here for 38 years where have you been right it's not what he says you see healing and deliverance actually has uncomfortable implications especially after a lifetime of bondage Healing means accepting responsibility. It means standing up. It means taking dominion over the conditions that desire to dominate you. And it means actively walking in the strength God has already provided you. You see, lying in bondage is often much easier than walking in restoration. Just ask the Israelites who wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt rather than take dominion over the promised land. But Jesus doesn't get distracted by all the victimized misdirection of this man. I love it. Jesus just offers him a way out of it entirely. He doesn't go down rabbit trails of trying to convince him anything. He just looks at him and says, get up. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up. Take your bed and walk. 
And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now I want you to notice something. This man never demonstrates any kind of real faith in Jesus. Not once does he articulate any understanding that he even may be the Messiah. Like, in fact, this guy has only articulated blame-shifting and bitterness. Even when Jesus gave him the opportunity to show an ounce of faith, instead we get an excuse. Like, seriously, Jesus heals this guy for no other reason than he simply wanted to. Like, the best this guy has to offer is that he doesn't tell Jesus to go away. I mean, that's... Seriously, he asks him if he wants to be healed. The man's answer is just a little bit more than no. Like, it's like Jesus is looking for a reason to heal this guy. Like, he's just looking for, he's like, well, he didn't say no. All right, I can work with that. Get up. Like, I want you to take this in. I want you to see this. Now, it's true that Jesus will not force deliverance on a hostile or skeptical people. It's a contradiction to his character. We see this throughout the scriptures. But I love what this story says about the willingness of Jesus to show compassion. Like if you're ever, like, if you've ever prayed for healing and you didn't receive it and then somebody told you it was because you didn't have enough faith, as if the God of all creation would be way stronger if you'd just believe a little more. Like, there's no real rest in that, guys. Which means that there's not any any real faith in that either. Think about this. As if the fact that you didn't get healed means that you should be ashamed for not having enough faith. Do you know what the flip side of that is? If you did get healed, then you'd be proud of how much you believed. It's not much different from the shame that these invalids would have had for... Uh, not getting into the pool on time. But the human heart can come up with all kinds of ways to twist faith into something that we can do to even earn a miracle from God and make it about us. Lovers of self. Guys, there's no rest in that. It's just the torment of pride and shame. Guys, just read this story. This man has zero faith. He is bitter, lame dust. And as we'll see in a bit, he's also pretty ungrateful. And yet, Jesus still meets him right where he is. And he tells him to get up. Take your bed and walk. And then, he actually does it. 38 years of lying down, bound to that bed. 38 years of excuses. 38 years of playing the victim. And Jesus says, get up. Now what if he was like, but the pool hasn't been stirred up yet. What if Jesus is like, get up and, and you know, take your bed. And he's like, but the, the water's, there's nothing. And, and he doesn't do that. Because suddenly, this isn't about the pool anymore. It's about Jesus. And notice that he doesn't just say, get up. He says, get up, take dominion over the very thing you were bound to. This is a physical deliverance from bondage. Jesus is calling him to enter into the physical wholeness and resurrection that he's provided. Jesus provides the strength, and now he's calling this man to walk in it. 
This is what rest and restoration looks like. The man rests in Jesus. He ceases his vain strivings and his false hopes, and he rests in true living hope. But again, he doesn't get up because he has enough faith or because he's enough. He's not enough, but Jesus is enough for him. Resting in that is actually what faith is. This passage is all about rest, but it's not a lame rest. It's an active, restorative rest. Look back at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now the Sabbath was a day that God set aside for his people to Shabbat which literally in Hebrew means to rest or to cease striving. And while the rest of the world continued in the unending clamor for survival seven days a week, God set his people apart, commanding them to rest even if the work wasn't finished, to trust him for their provision and wholeness and begin to break the grip of the curse on their lives. That's what the Sabbath was all about. But again, Leave it to religious self-centered hearts to even twist the day of rest into another means for striving in vain, right? Like the religious leaders have made up extra rules called the Mishnah. And one of those extra rules said that you couldn't carry things from one place to another on the Sabbath. It wasn't biblical. It was just a little extra that they thought they should do. So when they see this man walking in wholeness and carrying his bed, they accuse him of breaking God's law. You get the accuser immediately, pointing at him. Verse 11. So they accuse him. And then verse 11. He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, He's been healed physically here, but I want you to see that spiritually this guy is still bound to his old ways of playing the victim and shirking responsibility. That may shock some of you, but he's still spiritually lame. Like this sounds a lot actually like the way Adam responds when God asks him if he's eaten from the tree, right? And Adam's response was, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate, right? And so this old lame man here who's been healed physically but spiritually still lame it says when they asked him verse 12 who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk right and now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place so again notice he doesn't know Jesus he doesn't know him he knows the gift but not the giver He's physically whole, but spiritually, he's still completely self-consumed and lame. Verse 14, afterwards, I love this, Jesus finds him in the temple. So he find, now he was unclean because he was lame, and now he can actually go into the temple. And so Jesus then finds him in the temple, and he said to him, see, you are well. I love it. Like, see, told you so. Like, I love the celebration in this. Also, this is the kind of thing you'd say to somebody who doubted and didn't believe. Right? This healing was a blatant act of pure mercy. And then he says something really, 
revealing about the entire interaction. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more. And what does that mean? Wait, does that mean that his paralysis was because of his sin? Or is Jesus referring to the fact that he was ready to throw Jesus to the religious wolves just to save himself? I think the answer here is both. Now, that doesn't mean that all sickness and disease is the direct result of personal unrepentant sin. This is important. In fact, in John 9, Jesus heals another man on the Sabbath in an extremely similar way, but he makes it clear that in that particular case, his issue was not the direct result of anyone's sin. That was in John 9, right? And by the way, the way that the man Jesus heals in John 9 The way that he responds to Jesus is radically different than the way that this guy responds to Jesus here in chapter 5. Radically different. We'll get there later in the series. I can't wait. It's going to be good. Um, But as for this man here in chapter 5, it's clear that his physical issue is linked to his spiritual state of unrepentance. And although he's been healed physically, if he doesn't repent, Jesus tells him something worse is going to happen. You see, all physical healing is designed to point us to the greater need of spiritual healing. Just because someone's healed physically, it does not mean they are healed spiritually. This is important. You see this throughout the Bible, all right? It's important to realize that every physical healing Jesus performs is eventually undone in this world over time. Think about that. Every physical ailment and blind eye that Jesus opened was eventually shut again at, their, at the end of their earthly life. Even Lazarus died again. Think about that. He was resurrected, or will be resurrected again at the end of the age. But for those who received spiritual healing, right, they may or may not taste physical wholeness on this side of heaven. But on the day of resurrection, they will all know both physical and spiritual shalom. I'm all for physical healing, guys. Listen to me. (laughs) I'm all for it. I love it. But we need to realize that when Jesus heals physically, it's always a sign pointing to the greater need for spiritual healing. Always. But not everybody sees it. Too often we want the gift and not the giver, and so we worship the sign rather than what it's pointing to because we're all too self-consumed to see anything else. Again, this is why the prosperity gospel takes our eyes off of who Jesus is eternally and makes us just think about right in front of our face. And we miss the good gift that he has for us in the midst of our seasons. Because that gift is, to, is truly good because of who it points to, which is the giver. Right? Again, I'm all for physical healing. I've seen God heal with such blatant supernatural extravagance through some of the most simple prayers that I'm not even surprised anymore when he heals people. Honestly, I'm amazed. I'm floored by how amazing and glorious he is. But he, I'm not even surprised like, some of you in here may wonder why I don't have a bulletin board of, the, like, the physical healings that we've had in our church. In some ways, we do. It's called the prayer and praise cards. Fill them out. I love to praise God for the things that he's done. But at the end of the day, like, I, I, 
And hear me, the greater miracles aren't the physical ones. They're not. Like, I've seen him miraculously bring people back from the brink of physical death, and I've had the honor of seeing him spiritually rescue them through physical death. I've seen him physically rescue people from the grave, and I've seen him spiritually rescue people through the grave. And the spiritual rescue is always, always, always the greater miracle. Because without spiritual wholeness, all physical miracles will eventually be undone because they're just temporary. I think that's what's happening here in chapter 5. And so in a continued show of pure mercy, Jesus gives this man another opportunity to repent and turn away from his sin. To stand up, to spiritually take dominion over his flesh, and to walk in spiritual restoration and newness of life. Jesus healed him physically, but his physical healing was ultimately designed to direct him to his need for spiritual healing. Which is why he says, sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. This man's been trying to save himself for 38 years. Physically, he's restored, but spiritually, his heart is still striving and insecure and restless. Like, there's no real shalom in his heart, because that only comes through faith in Christ alone. So he says, repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin so that nothing worse may happen to you. Well, what's worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Eternal damnation. That's what's worse. And that's where his self-saving mentality is leading him. Verse 15. The man went away. This is how he responds to that conversation and interaction. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Guys, that's not a testimony. That's not a witness. He's not saying, come and see. His response wasn't to Jesus, you're the son of God and the Christ. His response wasn't even, thank you. His response is that he goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him simply to get himself off the hook. His response to Christ's show of mercy was essentially crucify him. This is the response of a lover of self. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, the point here is that because Jesus has done all that's necessary, we can rest in him. We can rest in his provision and finished work at the cross. That doesn't mean that we just kick back and take it easy all the time. It means that we actively repent of trying to save ourselves in our own ways and in our own strengths and trying to attain our false hopes. Like it means that we turn from those false pools and false hopes of striving and then we rest in reliance upon his finished work at the cross. And that in itself, that in itself often requires great intentionality. Like this kind of rest requires that we stand up out of the self-centered mindsets of self-reliance. And it requires we lift our heads to his provision and actively take dominion over any urge to fall back into our old habits why we take that bed 
under dominion, right? Like true rest means walking in the restoration. I want to say resurrection. It is. But it, it means walking in the restoration provided through the finished work at the cross. That's what true rest is. Walking in what he has already won for you. Look at Hebrews 4.9. Hebrews 4.9 through 11. This is what it means. It says this. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So how do you strive to enter rest? Because, again, it sounds like a contradiction. And yet behold what God is saying here. He's saying, you behold what God's already done. And you remind yourself that it is finished. He's won the victory. The curse is broken. So stand in the power of Christ. Take spiritual dominion over your bed of sin and walk in newness of life. And when you fail, when you find yourself feeling like you're not enough, realize you're not And that's the point. He is. He is enough. And his grace is sufficient. So rest in the victory that he's already won for you. And walk out your restoration. I'm going to close with this. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. says this. This is Jesus talking. Come to me. You've probably heard this passage, but I hope you hear it with a little extra this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like, can't you see him saying this to all the people at that pool? Come to me. Quit looking at that false hope. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love, like, the the idea here is that of two oxen pulling a wagon. And they're yoked together, right? And so when you have two oxen, you don't put two stud oxen together. Okay, you put one stud oxen who's fully capable of doing it all, and then you put one little baby one who can barely just kind of keep up, who can learn how to walk the walk. You yoke them together, okay, and the stud oxen's doing all the the stud oxen is doing all the work, and the little guy is just like following in his ways. He's pulling it, man, but he's yoked up and he's learning. He doesn't need him, but he's teaching him. He's he's allowing that other oxen to partner in the mission with him. You see this? And he's not biting and kicking him. He's not a jerk, right? He's gentle and lowly in heart. The other one can rest even as they walk it out together.
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say stop and lay down. He says come to me and come with me. Yoke up to me. Let me carry the burden and let me show you the way. He says cast your cares upon me. Submit your requests to me. And the shalom of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.